This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's a show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, who will be joining us via Skype. Hello, Professor Gershon. How is everything in Oxford this morning? Everything is great in Oxford, Liz, and uh, you know it's really exciting to have Professor Desiree Hensley on the show uh, today. She's been on the show before and always does a great job, uh, and uh, she runs our housing clinic and, and does really fantastic work for not only our students, but for the people of our state as well. Professor Hensley, we're so glad that you're joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Desiree, I mean, you tell us a little bit about your background. I know you went to Georgetown Law School and, and practiced in estate planning and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and housing law also in D.C. So mm-hmm. what brought you to Oxford? What, what, what attracted you to, to being at Ole Miss? Um, well, I, I did get my legal education in Washington, D.C. And when I graduated, I was um, a law fellow doing what's called public interest law. And um, public interest law is, is the law that you do um, when you're practicing for the purpose of making the world a, a better place and enforcing people's rights. Um, and that's what I went to law school to do. And that's what I was doing in Washington, D.C., um, but in the area of housing law and real estate, and there's lots of rights um, that need to be enforced in those areas. But interestingly, the thing that brought me to Oxford was really um, uh, none of those things, nothing related to housing. Um, My husband actually runs the Mississippi Innocence Project, and um, we were looking to see if there were any interesting public interest law opportunities outside the District of Columbia that we might want to pursue as a couple. And he he came to the law school first um, to open the Mississippi Innocence Project. Um, and then I continued to telecommute uh, doing my work in Washington, D.C. And then um, another position opened up at the law school doing the kind of work that I do. And so I went ahead and applied for it so I could keep doing that work here. Well, we are so lucky to have both Desiree <laughs> Hensley and Tucker Carrington at this law school and, and the impact they've had not just on the law school, but the state has been uh, amazing. And talk a little bit, I know you just got some press about um, the Moorhead community and, and what you, the housing clinic and the students, uh, along with your you know, with your leadership, did in, the, in that community. What happened there? Well, I have been uh, teaching at the law school for um, just over 10 years. And one of the first cases that came across my desk um, in my teaching uh, was a case relating to a, a low-income community in Moorhead, Mississippi, that was, um, when I say community, it it had uh, or has about 60 homes, I would say um, uh, between three and 400 residents. Um, They were having really serious problems with their water and sewer system and their roads being in serious disrepair. 
and their homes were also in disrepair. And so <clears throat> my students and I began looking to see what kind of uh, remedies there might be, who was responsible for repairing the sewer system and the water, who was responsible for repairing the roads, and who was responsible for the condition of the homes. And after litigating a case for a number of years, we settled that case, and um, we've been working with the neighborhood ever since. The case, I think, settled fully in 2014, but the exciting news is that um, the community has a new partner now, the Hope Enterprise Corporation, um, that is coming in to help uh, rehabilitate the whole neighborhood. As a result of the lawsuit, the city of Moorhead um, accepted responsibility for the sewer system and the water. Sunflower County accepted ownership of the roads, and all the people who lived there actually got deeds to their houses, when at the time they were they were tenants who did not have uh, housing security. And so now they do, and now Hope is helping them repair their homes so that they are in safe and decent condition. So it's a pretty exciting time. That sounds great. Well, I understand we have a caller, Liz. We do. We are going to now invite Preston from Grenada to be part of our show. Preston, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. You're on the air. Go ahead. All right. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be uh, talking to somebody that knows more than I do about this. I have a land issue. Go ahead. And and it and it, it it concerns about my ignorance about the whole thing. But I own a piece of land on both sides of the road. I pay taxes on. Well, this road is is a driveway to my house. But anyway, I own both the the road and the house. I've got title to it, and I pay taxes on it. However, some years ago, the county has claim on it. They just for no particular, and and I was completely uh, unaware that this was going on till after the fact. So um, I don't understand how you can have title to something except the county or the government uh, controls it. I don't understand that. If somebody explain that, I'll be happy to answer. Um, Preston, um, let me just say first of all that uh, the course that I teach at the law school, we we do help people with the types of the type of issue that you're having. Um, issues related relating to the title of land and disputes with other owners or even with the government. Um, unfortunately, without knowing more, I'm not going to be able to tell you why the county thinks that it owns the road. These types of cases take a lot of background research. Um, but I can tell you that there's only a couple of ways that that's possible. Um, <clears throat> one would be that somewhere back in time, maybe an owner prior to you gave the county an interest in the road, um, and you're not aware of that. And someone could, a lawyer could look back at earlier deeds to see if that's the case. Um, sometimes a, a county or an individual can sort of grow a right to use a road over time. Um, that could have happened, and that would be a pretty uh, specific uh, factual inquiry that we would have to make. And then there are eminent domain proceedings. You would know if you were this, if your land was the subject of an eminent domain proceeding because you would be taken to court and um, have the opportunity to. Um, 
to discuss with the judge what your compensation should be and things like that. But those are a couple of options. It is possible, in other words, that you could have a deed that to you looks like you own the road and no one else can use your road, but it is possible that your deed is subject to the county's uh, use of that road. And um, a lawyer is going to have to look, go to the land records office and look at all the deeds to determine if that's the case. Well, could I come to Oxford and uh, give you the specifics? Um... Yeah, let me let me tell everyone about the uh, legal clinic that I direct. It's called the Low Income Housing Clinic, and uh, the phone number is six six two nine one five. Three four nine three. I do want to say while everyone's listening that we don't do new intakes during the summer because we are um, a school and we don't have students during the summer. This doesn't sound like it's an emergency issue, so it sounds like something that you could probably wait on until um, school is back in session. Um, but you can feel free to call that number and do an intake. Let me just tell you, though, that we only serve people who are lower income, meaning that they cannot afford the services of an attorney, or where, for some reason, they're struggling to just um, retain an attorney, maybe because their town or their area doesn't have that many attorneys, um, or uh, it's in some situations, their cause is an unpopular one, and it's hard to get representation. So just because someone calls doesn't mean we're going to represent you, but we will do a full intake and then determine if we can provide legal services. And if we do, those are free legal services. So, Preston, please do feel free to call. Just know that um, because we're getting close to the end of the semester, we may not be able to do a full intake until the fall. Okay, can I can I uh, make sure I got the number right? It's nine one five three five one three. No, that's not right. Let me say it again. It's six six two nine one five three four nine three. Three four nine three. Oh, that makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, right. Preston. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. We appreciate yeah. Preston calling in. And if you want to call in and have uh, Professor Desiree Hensley tell you what the law is concerning housing, when we come back from the break, she'll be able to take your questions along with Professor Richard Gershon. We're talking about housing and the laws around that. Uh, Professor Hensley is the director of the housing clinic there at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. How common are evictions in Mississippi? We'll tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. We'll also put information on our website, like the contact number for the low-income housing clinic that our guest, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic, Desiree Hensley, is in charge of. Our show is also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. And I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Mississippi ranks eighth in the nation for evictions, according to Eviction Lab, a Princeton-based research team that compiled every eviction in the record in the country from 2000 to 2016. Does that, uh, does that coordinate with the things that you've been studying, uh, Professor Hensley? Um, yeah, eviction is very common in Mississippi. Um, evictions are as common as rentals. Um, and so I think that um, our home uh, owner occupancy rate in Mississippi is about 65%. It's pretty high um, compared to the national rate. But even at 65%, uh, the difference between 65% and 100%, those are all going to be rentals. And any rental situation is, uh, I would say, likely uh, to lead to an eviction proceeding. And um, and in Mississippi, once there's an eviction proceeding filed, uh, it's very, it's more than likely, I would say, 80 to 85 percent likely that it's going to actually result in the eviction. There are very few people in the state who raise eviction defenses because we don't have many attorneys who are able to represent people in those court proceedings. And so it's almost a given that if a landlord files for an eviction, they're going to get it. Well, Desiree, you have talked about, and that, that really leads into some of your scholarship, too, which is you talked about the fact that housing is a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times evictions and, and low-income housing really affect uh, more racially African-Americans mm-hmm. than, than, than white people. How, how, I mean, how does that play into evictions as well? Well, uh, there's still a, a correlation uh, in our society between uh, poverty and race. And what I mean by that is um, you're uh, more likely to be impoverished in Mississippi if you're a minority. And it's, it's really impossible for someone who's impoverished to protect their housing-related rights. And there are some rights that tenants have in Mississippi. Uh, and uh, certainly a right to defend yourself in court. But if you can't afford someone to, to inform you what your rights are or how to defend yourself, and you can't afford someone to come in and make those arguments for you, then you really don't uh, stand much of a chance to protect yourself, even when you have rights. So, for example, Mississippi has an implied warranty of habitability. That means that a landlord is supposed to keep your rental housing safe and decent, 
not not dangerous to you as the tenant, and I see a lot of dangerous housing conditions, rental housing conditions in Mississippi. In addition to that, the landlord is supposed to comply with any local code, um, and then there are other requirements uh, as well, like the landlord is supposed to maintain the property in the condition that it is was in at the inception of the lease. And if the landlord doesn't do that, a tenant's actually entitled to what's called a rent offset. You should get back the rent that you paid in full. And so if the landlord's in court suing you for rent, you're entitled to make an argument you shouldn't have to pay so much rent because the conditions were bad. But I never see tenants raise those uh, arguments in court. And, and so I very rarely see tenants able to exercise their rights to keep their housing or to pay less for their housing, even when the landlord is not following the law. What, what kind of thing? You said you've seen some dangerous conditions. What what kind of things have you seen? And I know I, I went actually went down and looked at uh, with you in Indianola and saw the conditions um, and, and was appalled by them. So, you know, what what kinds of things have you seen? Well, the conditions that you've seen are not that uncommon. Um, you see a lot of uh, water issues. And so when a home has moisture uh, from whatever source, that moisture comes with uh, mold and mildew, the decay of the structure itself, uh, which leads to further decay of the structure. And so in a house like that, you, you know, you're going to have tenants who are suffering the consequences of living in mold and mildew. You're going to see walls and drywall and plaster deteriorating, ceilings falling in. This, you can see the sky through sometimes the ceiling um, and out the roof. You can see the ground uh, where the floor has rotted and actually see the ground under the home. Uh, you know, vermin can get in under those circumstances and do come in. Um, a lot of homes would have uh, electrical issues or issues with utilities. I have a client right now who's really struggling because her rent is fairly affordable for her at about eighteen. I'm sorry, eight hundred dollars a month for a mobile home, but her utility bills over the winters, her electric bill only has been a thousand dollars a month, and um, <clears throat> there's very little that she can do about that condition, and so. Um, you name it, you're going to see uh, really difficult housing conditions, um, even in properties where tenants are paying a decent amount of money for rent in Mississippi. Well, if I raise one of those issues, I say to my, my landlord, you know, I got I, my roof is about to cave in. I've got uh, vermin here. Uh, I'm going to withhold my rent. Can they try to evict me if I do that? Yeah, there's no right to withhold rent in Mississippi. Um, the, In other words, yes, if you say I'm not going to pay you until you meet your end of the bargain, um, the landlord will definitely take you to court. Um, the landlord has to give you three days' notice. And then uh, after three days, the landlord can sue you. And then you can be evicted for nonpayment. Your only defense at that point would be to come in and say, I should get what's called a rent offset. I shouldn't have to pay because they're they're breaching the lease. But most tenants don't know that they can make that argument in court. I mean, could I, could I if I paid my rent, let's say, could I, let's say I paid my rent, and I say, but I'm going to pay my rent, but... You know, I've got all these problems that you've got to fix. How, how would I, as a tenant, do, do that? I mean, and, and get, get reimbursed for that. Well, um, one thing you could do is sue your landlord if you could find a lawyer who you could afford. I wouldn't say that that's the type of case that's going to make enough money to normally be able to retain a landlord who would get uh, expect to get paid when it was concluded. But it's a breach of contract. And so you could go into court and claim a breach of contract. 
unlikely to happen because lawsuits are expensive. The Mississippi Residential Landlord-Tenant Act has um, a provision where as the tenant, you can give a landlord 30 days notice that there's a condition that is a breach of contract and tell the landlord, you fix it in 30 days or I'm going to fix it. And if the tenant then fixes it, the tenant's entitled to reimbursement for that repair. And if the landlord doesn't reimburse, can withhold that from the rent. But it's limited. You can only exercise that right if you're current on your rent. And you can only exercise it once every six months. And you can't spend any more than one month's rent. And so for a serious problem that's going to cost more than one month's rent to repair, it's really not a, a very effective remedy. It's only for minor problems. Well, so, you know, it's, uh, it seems like it's really hard. I mean, it's very hard. Yeah, you definitely need a lawyer to enforce your landlord-tenant rights in Mississippi. Well, that's why it's, I mean, it's so great that your clinic is available to people because a lot of times it affects mostly low-income people. I mean, this is really It does. Where, and that's because higher income people can afford a lawyer to enforce their rights. And so, yes, this is really a low income uh, tenant issue. And some jurisdictions, some states, let's say, well, that's probably too broad, some, some cities and some states are starting to uh, allow courts to appoint lawyers for low income people who are facing eviction without counsel. And that's because in some places, it's becoming more and more recognized that, that tenants often and do have defenses that would allow them to uh, stay in their home and that when, when a tenant is evicted, the result is, is homelessness often because it's very expensive to move all your belongings, to put down new utility deposits, to put down a new security deposit. And when families in particular uh, become homeless, that creates a, a high expense for society, right? Trying to take care and provide public resources to those who become homeless is much more expensive than trying to protect a person's right to stay where they are in a safe and decent place. And so some places are starting to have the the government pay for someone to have an attorney stand up with them in court when, when they're facing an eviction. Well, and, you know, you, you wrote in uh, your most recent article about the fact that the displacement of children from public schools, for example. Yes. You know, uh, you know that, that if, you, if they have to move out of one city and into another, or one town into another, one county into another, that has a negative impact on those children and on society as well. Yeah, eviction is really a crisis for children. That they can happen very quickly. It destabilizes the family. It can make it hard for mom and dad to get to work when there's no place to live. If they have to leave the jurisdiction, then the kids don't even have a school to to go to. And so that cost is more than a personal one to that family. It really begins to have an impact on society when you have this sort of rapid eviction process and it destabilizes families. It's interesting because we've had, go ahead. I'm sorry. Listeners, if you have a question and would like to participate in the show, if you have a question about uh, landlord tenant law, if you have a question about evictions, if you have a question about security deposits, or you have a question about HUD, we would love for you to call in and be a part of our show. Our phone number is 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672 7464. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'd love for you to interact with our guest, Associate Professor and Director of the Housing Clinic, Desiree Hensley. Thank you. So uh, now, um, 
that's what we talked about. I, I think it's interesting that employment law, we've had employment law on the show before. And there's there are great protections. People recognize that jobs are something mm-hmm. that need to be protected. Uh, there, there are reasons why people can be fired and not fired. They're, they're, and we understand societally. It doesn't seem like we have the same protections for housing. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it has been my experience. Um, I, I sometimes say that you know housing law is sort of the ugly stepchild of civil rights, <laughs> the unpopular stepchild. I guess because you know housing doesn't seem that sexy or interesting in the abstract, but in fact, um, housing is the subject of, of a civil rights statute. It's called the Fair Housing Act of 1968. It was an issue that Martin Luther King was working on at the time of his assassination, and the idea is that we should have. Um, open housing in our society. People should be able to uh, get housing, live in a neighborhood of their choice, and not be subject to discrimination in making those choices. And so it really is a very active area of civil rights law. And if people are facing discrimination, we can talk about that more. They actually have federal rights that are protectable, too, if they have an attorney. That sounds good. Well, you know, we, um, before we take a break, we, 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 I know you also talked about um, HUD and how, you know what is HUD exactly, and how are how are HUD funds helpful or not as helpful as they could be in in, in low income housing? Well, HUD has a number of ways that it supports uh, low income housing in the United States. One is through subsidizing uh, local housing authorities. A lot of towns um, have what's called a housing authority, and each apartment at that authority or home at that authority is going to be available for cheaper to someone who's really low income. Um, to live there. Um, HUD also provides vouchers that people can take to any landlord and use as long as the uh, rent level is within a certain limit. Um, And then HUD provides all kinds of grant money for towns to use to improve sort of infrastructure like sewer, water, roads, sidewalks, parks, things like that to make the community a healthier place uh, for the people who live there. And I think that HUD's programs are very helpful. I don't think that they're perfect. But I think that they're very helpful in they're the only thing we have that ensures that our lowest income individuals in our society uh, can aren't aren't homeless. Um, They uh, in a a rental market that's always uh, getting to be more expensive day after day, month after month. Without some of these subsidies, uh, there's a whole category of people who would have no place to live whatsoever. And when you live in a state like Mississippi with an extremely high poverty rate of over or about 20%, I think, right now. We don't want 20% of the people who live here to be homeless. And so we really need the subsidies that HUD provides. And and if you have one of those subsidies, you also have additional rights. Well, we can talk about those more after the break. This is such a fascinating topic. And I, Liz, I know we, we need to take a break. We do. It's time for us to take a little break so we can uh, uh, take a glass of water. We'll get some calls in. Our number, if you would like to call in for talking about housing today, is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 You could also send us an email if you can't get to the phone right now. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. How about Jackson? If you, How often do evictions happen in Jackson? We'll tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Gershon is our expert, and we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. We've kind of got a competition going on here at MPB, and uh, In Legal Terms wants to be uh, the top subscriber, and so we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. There's many different podcasting platforms. I use Podcast Addict. Other people use Stitcher or CastBox or Pocket Casts. I downloaded one to my phone, my Android phone, touched the plus that took me to the page to search for podcasts. Then I typed in in legal terms in the search area and it brings up in legal terms. And then I'm able to touch the photo and subscribe. That way I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up and I won't miss any of our good programming. This morning we're talking about housing. We're talking about how housing is part of civil rights. We're talking landlord-tenant law with our guest, Desiree Hensley, Associate Professor of Law and the Director of the Housing Clinic, the Low Income Housing Clinic at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you have a question, we would love for you to call in or email and participate. We're going to go to Craig in Biloxi. Craig, thanks for calling in today. You're on the air for In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Uh, My issue is with uh, security deposits and uh, is the landlord required to give you an itemized deduction and how do you get that If, if if your deposit has been withheld? Uh, yeah, Craig. Um, the uh, Mississippi Residential Landlord Tenant Act has a section that uh, directly addresses security deposits. The landlord is supposed to send you an itemization of the uh, withholding that the landlord has made from your security deposit when the lease ends. And the landlord is supposed to do that automatically or return your security deposit upon demand uh, within 40 days of you, 45 days of you demanding it as the tenant. Uh, once the landlord sends that itemization, there's really no process in the law to dispute what the itemization says. But you, theoretically, you could go to court and uh, demand your security deposit back if you think that the landlord has wrongfully withheld your security deposit, even if they have sent you the itemization. Okay. But let me just, okay. just to clarify, be sure, anybody who's a tenant, when your tenancy ends, be sure to demand your, your security deposit back because the landlord is required by law to return it to you within 45 days of that demand or if they withhold any of it to send you that itemization. Okay. Okay, that's it. All right. Thanks, Craig. We appreciate you calling in. Next, we have Stephen, who is on the road. Stephen, drive carefully, but we're so glad you've called in to In Legal Terms. You're on the air. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Liz. I always enjoy calling. I usually call the the guys that do the home stuff on Wednesday, but anyway. (laughs) Um, I was wondering, I had rented a house and um, lived there for several years. They did no repairs or really anything the whole time that I lived there. When I moved out, it was in the same condition or better than whenever I actually moved in there, but they flat refused to give me my $700 security deposit back. They never told me a reason. 
They just said they're not in the business of refunding security deposits. Now, I've been listening to the show, and I think my question was answered, but what kind of legal recourse would I have had as a tenant to get that deposit back? Well, uh, unfortunately, I see landlords just keeping security deposits uh, often uh, in Mississippi. And one reason for that is you don't have much recourse. You would have to go into court and sue to get it back. And that lawsuit is not going to be an incredibly valuable one because normally a security deposit is a month or, or maybe two months of the monthly rent. And the Mississippi statute does provide a penalty if you go into court and the court determines that the landlord wrongfully withheld your security deposit. Uh, the, the judge has the option of fining, essentially fining the landlord an extra $200. And that $200 really isn't enough to create an incentive for a lawyer to take your case. And so there is no easy way for you to get your security deposit back. Uh, I will say that you know a security deposit suit uh, should meet the uh, the qualifications to go into any court in the state. And so you could go into justice court to pursue it. I really don't recommend that people go into justice court, uh, but you could definitely go into circuit court or county court uh, as on, on a security deposit dispute. And in one of those courts, it's a little more expensive, but you're more likely, I think, to get the judgment that you're entitled to. Okay. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Stephen. We appreciate you calling in. If you would like to call in to learn what the laws are surrounding landlord-tenant, surrounding renting and leasing and uh, security deposits or HUD, we would love for you to call in. Our number is one 877 mpb ring That's one 877 672-7464 or you could send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We have another phone call. We're going to go to Tim in Biloxi. Tim, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. I've been listening to your show. Uh, so I am I recently was approved to buy a home through USDA. I've been a renter for most of my life. Uh, are there any real foreseeable downsides uh, for buying a home through USDA? That, I mean, I, I couldn't see any on paper, but perhaps there's something I'm not knowing to look for. I don't see any downsides. Usually a USDA loan actually has some additional protections. So I don't think there's a downside in that. Uh, the USDA will make loans to individuals who may not necessarily qualify for a conventional loan. And so it's a good program. I, I don't see any downside to, to uh, getting a mortgage and financing the purchase of a home through the USDA. I'd say it's as good as, if not better, than a conventional lender. Well, I was in the situation where, um, you know, I'm a dad and I've got three children living at home with me. And um, I, I really just couldn't raise, 
you know, fifteen twenty thousand dollars for a down payment on a house for a conventional loan. So mm-hmm. when I got to reading up on it, but you know, I, I guess I'm a bit of a pessimist. So I'm like, well, you know, hopefully this is not a too good to be true kind of thing. So. And even though I've kind of already started the process and actually this morning um, put in a, um, a bid on a home, but I guess I'm still a little bit nervous. I didn't know if there was any real big, you know, downside to, to getting a home through USDA. Well, I'm glad that you called because a lot of people are not aware that the U.S. Department of Agriculture will act as a mortgage lender for uh, individuals who need to buy a home and and they just can't qualify at your local bank. And so I'm glad that everybody who's listening hears that. And the USDA is a department of the federal government that is making these loans so as to provide better housing opportunities for people in rural areas. And I have uh, had a problem, I've had a client in the past who was having a servicing problem with um, a USDA loan, but I would not say that it was the kind of servicing problem that I often see in conventional loans, and I found it very easy to work with the USDA and trying to resolve that problem. And the USDA is motivated to, to try to keep you in your loan, whereas a lot of conventional lenders, they sell your loan as soon as you enter into it, and you don't have a lender who's really concerned about whether you stay in it or not, and so may not be as always as open to alternatives to foreclosure other than what federal law might require them to do, whereas the USDA is really is giving um, people a loan because they really it really wants people to, to achieve home ownership. And so I would I would feel good about that loan. Um, hopefully, you got a good interest rate. I have noticed that sometimes the USD inter, USDA interest rate is a little bit higher, and that's because uh, they're accepting what the industry would consider to be riskier loans, um, but not so high that I would think it was a, a terrible interest rate. Tim, if you'd like to get a more warm, fuzzy feeling about that on Money Talks, which is the show that was just previous to this, on our August 21st, 2018. 18 show, we had the state director of the USDA Rural Development and the Housing Program Director on the show. That show is available as a podcast and online at mpbonline.org. And once again, the USDA and Rural Development part of Mississippi uh, employees, they were on Money Talks August 21st of 2018. All right, I'll look into that. All right, Tim, thanks for calling in. We need to take our last break of the show. Then we'll get back to Roger and Bill, uh, who are holding on. Uh, I didn't get a chance to mention that Jackson ranks fifth per capita for cities, over 100,000 people or more for evictions. But uh, what about evictions in other cities? We'll tell you some of those statistics when we come back. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms today. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash In Legal Terms. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law with our guest Desiree Hensley, who's also a professor at the university in the law school and the director of the housing clinic. I've been throwing a few statistics out. Horn Lake, Mississippi, ranked seventh in mid-size evictions at 11.9%. There were 416 evictions in Horn Lake in 2016. That amounts to 1.14 households every day. Gulfport was 22nd in mid-size cities with 1,248 evictions in Gulfport in 2016. That's about three and a half households per day per 100, uh, which is 9.68 per 100 renters. We have a couple of, uh, we have a caller who would like to bring in, and that's Roger. Roger, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. You're on the air. Go ahead. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for what you're doing. Good morning. Uh, as, as the dean knows, I... Oh, Roger. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, we've lost Roger. Uh, Well, we have an email that we can go to. This is from uh, Judy. Judy says, my question is if a college student graduates in December and sign a lease that would not end until July, but the apartment complex was aware of the December graduation, can that student still be charged the remainder of the rent? Is that illegal? And if so, what can the student do? If the student signed a lease agreement through the end of July, then the student is going to be responsible for paying the lease through the end of July, even though the student is graduating in December, and even though the apartment complex knew that the student was graduating in December. And if the student had a co-signer, then the co-signer would be, or a guarantor would be liable for those payments if the student doesn't make them. Now, could they possibly uh, get a sublease in that situation? I mean, could they find somebody else to rent the apartment? And- if the lease does not prohibit an assignment or a sublease, then the tenant, the student, could try to find someone to take over their lease for him or her. But a lot of larger apartment complexes will not allow you to do that. You have to seek permission. Um, They might be willing to work with the student and say, sure, if you find someone who we think is qualified to take over the lease, then we will be glad to do that. Normally what they'll say, though, is sure, if you find someone who we we would want to lease to, it can't just be someone you choose. It would have to be someone who the landlord would also want to accept as a tenant. They'll say, sure, they can come in and they can pay the rent for you, but if they don't pay, then you stay liable for the payment. And so you have to be real careful if you're uh, subleasing that and you're, the, and you're the original tenant that you don't stay on the hook for the next tenant if you sublease. 
All right. Let's go back to Roger. Roger, uh, we're sorry we lost you, but we're glad you called back. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, as the dean knows, I've, I had some experience. Well, I practiced law a long time. And then I was a chancery court judge. And land matters, of course, come before chancery court. And one thing that would come up occasionally, not so much in court but in practice, is a problem with being somebody's uh, experience with a rent-to-purchase agreement. There are other names for that, but if you know what I'm talking about, I would like for you to comment on what that means, uh, the pros and the cons. If I talked very long, I would be con. It, it seldom works out for the buyer. It frequently works out for the seller. And in my opinion, it's not a good deal. But rent-to-buy contracts that are that have the attraction of being able to pay what really consists of rent, but you think you're purchasing the land, and then something happens and you don't get it. Would you comment on that, please? I think it'll be educational for your for your listeners. Uh, is, is it Thank clear you. what my subject matter is? It is, Judge. Thank you for calling, Judge, and I'll let Desiree answer that question. Hi, Roger. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that installment contracts or rent-to-purchase agreements very rarely are a good thing uh, for the buyer um, in Mississippi. They are usually not codified or written in such a way that it's clear what the actual relationship is between the buyer and the seller. Often there are a lot of terms that are, are oral, and and so it's uh, if, even if there is an agreement, it's a hard agreement to enforce if it's not in writing. And what tends to happen is the owner treats it like it's a purchase agreement uh, for some period of time, and that would relieve the owner of the duty as a landlord to take care of the property. But then when that becomes inconvenient, decides, oh, this is just a rental, and treats it as though it's a tenant, and then would go into justice court to pursue a very rapid eviction. And if the agreement is not one that is unambiguous and is in writing, then it's really hard for the buyer to show that it's anything other than a lease and they can be treated like a tenant even though they've gotten none of the benefits or you know supposed to be benefits of being a tenant for all those years including things like repairs and so it's a really sad situation when someone's been buying their home they they agreed to buy their home the, the owner agreed to sell it they've been paying for it for you know I've had this happen in a, with a client before who'd, who'd made 80% of the payments and had improved the property and added fixtures to the property, and then their relationship breaks down, and the next thing you know, they're evicted from the property. That's a really, really sad situation. And so there are some states that have enacted legislation that's, that's, that spells out what needs to be in writing if there's going to be an installment contract or a rent-to-purchase contract, and in those jurisdictions, it has to have some certain requirements, and it can be recorded in the land records office like a deed. And I think that would be a much better way for us to do it in Mississippi. And and I will say on the benefit side, the reason that you see a lot of these in Mississippi is there are a lot of low-income people who need to or want to acquire an ownership interest in property, but they 
cannot get a conventional loan. Their credit is too bad. Their income is too low. And and let me just also say that evictions ruin your credit. And so uh, an eviction without a defense um, that leads to an eviction sitting on your credit report or a judgment against you will ruin your credit and make it impossible for you to get a loan. And so the only way some people in the state could ever acquire an ownership interest in property would be through a rent-to-own contract. But when you have an owner who's really not playing by the rules, it's really easy to take advantage of people in that situation. Professor Hensley, we have one last email we'd like to get to. I'm going to paraphrase it. A individual, uh, Anne is a property manager for owners who are out of state. And when they've had tornadoes go through, she had a hard time getting uh, permission from owners to get repairs made in a timely manner. And uh, the tenants were very upset that it wasn't the work wasn't completed timely. Is there a liability? Does the property manager have any liability? Well, that's a complicated legal question. The manager is definitely acting as the agent of the out-of-state owner. And it's a complicated legal question whether the agent is going to be individually whether she and personally could have a judgment entered against her for the owners refusing to to do what the law requires. Um, well, and so since it's complicated, back. that's what emails are for. And we will be sure to we will forward this okay. email <laughs> and any that come along for the rest of the day to to you so we can get answers for our listeners. But we're so pleased that you were able to come be with us today. Uh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, well, great. Well, uh, this was just went so fast. That's going to wrap us up for today on In Legal Terms. Our call screener for today has been Michelle McAdoo, and our board engineer in Jackson is Jay White. So for Professor Richard Gershon, that I get to go visit tonight up in Oxford. I'm excited to be coming up there uh, at the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill, and up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy Show relatively speaking, but we hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be talking about paralegals, how to become one, what do they do, and we'll learn all about that. This is MPB Think Radio. Information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.